It's good afternoon. Good to see everybody. My name is Jesse. I'm one of the pastors here, if you don't know me. And I'm pretty sure a lot of you have no idea who I am because I have no idea who you are. Um, I see a lot of friendly faces, though. So if you're new or visiting, we want to welcome you for the family in town. Thanks for coming with your family to church on Sunday. I feel like it should go without saying, but I understand that it's difficult. It's not the most convenient thing to kind of go to church at 1.30 on a holiday. So we're glad you're here. Um, we're glad you could join us in worship. Um, I'm not going to lie. Not that I would lie anyway, but I'm not going to lie. Um, I'm actually pretty nervous today compared to usual. I mean, I think I'm always a little nervous. I think uh, someone said that whenever you do something you care about, you should be a little nervous. Um, but today I'm actually like pretty nervous. And it started when the kids were coming up. And at first I was really, I was charmed by it like you were. I saw my own daughter up there and it warmed my heart. Um, but then I looked out at all of you and I saw almost everyone smiling in this way where it made me think, this is the high point of the service for these people. Like, there's no way they're going to smile again. And then I looked out, and there were a couple of people not smiling. And I thought, for sure, if this isn't going to make them smile like these kids. There's nothing I got that's going to make them smile. So anyway, yeah, I, my heart was beating faster. And it's tough to follow the kids. That's just what I'll say. Um, but even though it's a little different today, even though it's a holiday, even though we had uh, the kids singing... Sorry, I'm having some trouble here. It's got to be the nerves. Even though it's a little different, we're still going to do what we normally do. We're going to get into the Word. Uh, I'm not just going to give you a devotional. I'm going to give you a full sermon, give you your money's worth, okay? Maybe not as much money's worth as I usually do. Uh, by the grace of God, it won't be as long. But we today are going to finish our four-part Advent series. And what we've been doing in this month of December as we've been Building up toward today, we've been looking at the advent of Jesus from the unique perspectives of all four gospel accounts. So we looked at what Matthew has to say about the birth of Christ, what Mark, what Luke have to say. And today, as we finish this series, we're going to finish with the gospel according to John. So if you have your Bible, I'd invite you to turn with me to John chapter 1. John 1. And today, we're only going to look at one verse, okay? Really, we're only going to look at part of one verse, so not even the whole thing. Uh, but there's plenty in here. Um, and what we'll do is, for the sake of context, we'll read starting in verse 1, and we'll read all the way to verse 14. And then I'll pray for us, and then we'll get into it. So, John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 2. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. 
but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of the blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now this is the verse that we'll be looking at today, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. This is the word of God. Will you pray with me? Let's pray together. Father, we are here today, gathered on this Christmas afternoon. And we're all here from different places. We all have a lot of things going on in our lives. But I pray, God, that during this time that you would speak to us. And God, I believe that you are real, that you work in our lives, that you have the ability to transform our hearts and to speak to us through your word. So God, I pray that you would do that today. I pray that you would leave us all with something, and I pray that you would draw us to yourself. Most of all, God, I pray that you would show us Christ. The reason we are here, the reason for the season, as we say, is him. So may this time be all about him. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Amen. When you hear the word home, home, what do you think of? Like what images flood through your mind? What feelings do you associate with it? I know people all have different connotations, different associations. Some of us, what we think about is a childhood place. And maybe the house that we grew up in, we remember the rooms, we remember our room, we remember certain memories associated with that building. Others of us, it's more of a generic thing, right? We go on trips a lot, maybe we fly or travel, and then we like to go home, right, where we can kick up our feet, sleep in our own bed. For others of us, though, some people, right, we don't have any experiences. It's more of a longing, or a feeling of something that we wish we could have. You know, I read a story once about a couple of kids who never had a home. There was Andre, who was six. His younger brother, Luke, was four. And it was their first Christmas holiday with their new family. See, they had spent their entire lives in an orphanage in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And in the orphanage, surprise, surprise, they didn't really celebrate Christmas at all. In fact, in this orphanage, they didn't celebrate anything. No special occasions, no birthdays, no nothing. But now they lived in a house in Seattle. The adoption process took three long years, but finally they had arrived, and they arrived in November, which meant that they came during a season when everything around them started to change. They saw people cut down trees or go to these parking lots and get trees and tie them to the roof of their cars and drive away. They saw strange and wonderful decorations popping up all over the place in storefronts, in people's yards. Lights were everywhere. Andre was six. Luke, his brother, was four. This was their first Christmas. But you got to understand, it was more than that. This was their first experience of something that they had never known, something that was called home. And you know, in a way, it's so appropriate to start here because there are a lot of layers to what Christmas is, to what Christmas has become in 21st century America. Ask anyone what they think of when they hear the word Christmas, and you'll hear a bunch of random stuff, and yet we all understand, right? Some people, they'll talk about Santa. Some people will talk about Starbucks cups changing, uh, snow, the Grinch, gifts, trees. I know people who associate Christmas with Die Hard, 
hot chocolate, Bing Crosby, reindeer, chestnuts roasting on an open fire. You could go on and on and on. But one of the interesting things is, if you really kind of dig down into it and listen to what people are saying, there are a few themes that run throughout all these disparate things. And one of those themes is home. It's home. You've seen the ad, snow falling outside a window, a family enjoying time together around a fire, home. You've watched it for the millionth time, maybe even this weekend, home, alone. You put it on the playlist. I'll be what? I'll be home for Christmas. It's a part of our culture to associate Christmas with home. I mean, think about it. For a lot of people, really, if you press them, they would say that there are a few things worse than not being able to be home on Christmas Day. See, the reality is, for so many people, you could take it all away. The trees, the lights, Santa himself, as long as you could be home for Christmas, as long as you could have a home on Christmas. All these other things, they're cool, but they don't really matter without it. So for you personally, there could be a few things, but when you hear the word home, what do you think of? And let me say this because it's church. Do you think of Jesus at all? Because this afternoon we turn to the gospel according to John, like I said, we read it, and John is different than the other gospel accounts. Even as I was reading these verses, the way he writes is totally different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's such a layered book with allusions and meaning and theology and reflection all wrapped up into one package. But as we look at the Advent through John's eyes, we see that he's not focused on too many things that you might associate with Christmas, even that the other gospel writers associate with Christmas. He doesn't write about shepherds or wise men or barn animals. He doesn't even talk about angels. He doesn't even talk about Mary and Joseph. No, in our verse today, he thinks of only one person. And surprisingly, maybe to us, he thinks of really only one thing associated with that person. John 1.14, just the first part, the word became flesh and he dwelt among us. What he thinks of is Jesus and what he thinks of is home. So let's get into it. First, the distance, then the descent, then the dwelling. We'll just break it down, this one little section of scripture into three parts. We'll just run through it and then we'll close. First point, the distance, which is about our longing for home. Verse 14 And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. John starts off by talking about the word. Now, who or what is the word? Well, if you go back to verse one, which we read, John starts the book by saying, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. So again, right away, you can pick up. He has a totally different style. John, he doesn't refer to Jesus as Jesus here, or even as the son of God. He calls him the word. And he starts his book by stating that Jesus was in the beginning. So for him, the beginning isn't the same as maybe what you'd expect from other Christmas stories. The beginning is is his birth. For Mark, the beginning was his baptism, his ministry. Here for John, the beginning of Jesus goes back before there was anything. Time immemorial. He starts in eternity past before the world even existed. Now, if you keep reading, he says in verse two, he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. See, John doesn't just have a different uh, different style. He has a different perspective. 
This is cosmic. This is transcendent, eternal. But I want to draw your attention to one thing, to the three words that begin this entire book, in the beginning. This is very intentional that John would start this way. Because there's another place in the Bible that starts exactly like this. Where have we heard that before? What other book begins in the exact same way with the exact same three words? Genesis, right? I heard some people say Genesis. That's good. Genesis. So if you could turn there with me, let's look at this. Genesis 1. And because Genesis starts with this, it really means the Bible itself starts with this. Genesis chapter 1. Genesis 1 verse 1. Shouldn't be too hard to find, hopefully, First book of the Bible, Genesis 1.1. Let me read the first two verses. The Bible begins with these words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then verse 3. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God speaks light and everything else into existence. And it's here we might get distracted with all these different questions. And there's a place to consider them. But for our purposes today, simply pay attention to the pattern in Genesis 1. God speaks, and so it is. And if you keep reading, that's how it keeps going. God speaks, and so it is. And then verse 10, if you look, it says, God saw that it was good. So here's the pattern, evening and morning, day after day, God speaks and so it is. And then verse 12, verse 18, verse 25, God sees everything that he made and it's good. And then God creates humanity at the end of the chapter. And then verse 31, and God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Everything was very good. Now, Okay, hopefully I didn't fully lose you by now. You aren't totally checked out. The kids aren't coming back, okay? Let me just tell you, they're not coming back. Because for a lot of us, okay, the reason why, even though I know it might have been tedious, this is familiar for most of us. Maybe the most familiar part of the Bible. If you try to read Bible in a year, at least you read this part, right? You got through one chapter. Might not get very far, but we read Genesis 1. I know it's tedious. Why did I bring this up? Jesse, what are you getting at? Well, I'm glad. You asked. I will answer your question with a question of my own. How would you define the word home? I know you got associations and feelings and memories, but how would you define it? If I asked you to explain it to me, how would you explain it? Look it up, okay, on Google, or you can look at what AI is saying these days. Look it up and you'll get something like the place that you live. Very helpful. But at the same time, we all understand at some level that this definition, while maybe correct, isn't enough. We understand that the concept of home is bigger than the dictionary definition. I remember reading this author once who said, home, right, the concept of home exercises a powerful influence over human life. Foreign-born Americans spend billions annually to visit the communities in which they were born. Children who never find a place where they feel they belong, carry an incapacity for attachment into their adult lives. Many of us have fond memories of times, people, and places where we felt we were truly home, end quote. The idea of home is bigger than just the place you live. So now we're back to where we started in the beginning, 
of the sermon. When you hear the word home, what do you think about? What images flood into your mind? What feelings do you associate with it? I thought about this for myself. Got to practice what you preach. And one thing that came to mind for me is my grandma's house. For the first 18 years of my life or so, literally every single Sunday, we went to my grandma's house for dinner. Like, I can't even remember a time when we didn't do it. I spent countless hours at her house, swimming in her pool in the backyard, playing video games in the guest room that when we were little kids, we called the Lego room because we had all these Legos in there. And I never lived there. Literally, I never lived there. But something about it has always resonated with me. It's always felt like home. And, you know, my grandma, she passed away about four years ago or so. And I haven't been to her house in even longer. In fact, it's not even her house. I just remembered when I was remembering this, that earlier this year, or maybe it was last year, but recently they sold her house. Someone else bought it. We saw a picture of it recently. They remodeled it. It doesn't even look the same. That house is gone. Or rather, should I say, the home that I remember is gone. See, it's not just the place that you happen to live. We understand that. If we move somewhere, it takes a while for this residence to feel like home. We can live in the same place for years, and it never really feels homey. You don't have to be homeless in the true sense to still feel this sense of missing something important. And that same author that I quoted, he went on to say, home then is a powerful but elusive concept. The strong feelings that surround it reveal some deep longing within us for a place that absolutely fits and suits us, where we can be or perhaps find our true selves. But then he goes on to say, Yet it seems that no real place or actual family ever satisfies these yearnings. And this is why we started in the beginning. In fact, if you turn the page, Genesis 2, in this very good world, God created a man and a woman, And Genesis 2.25 says that they were both naked and not ashamed. And understand what this is getting at. It's not about clothes or lack thereof only. It's about being able, in in that author's words, being able to be your true self. Do you understand that? They were naked and not ashamed. They could be who they were. The uh, The world absolutely fit them and suited them. And there was no problem with that, just being who you are. Now, you got to stop there for a second. Just sit with it. Okay, think about what that would be like. Can you imagine it? If there was a place you could go where you could just be yourself fully. I mean, can you even imagine a life where you didn't have to pretend in any way, shape, or form, where you could just breathe, relax, share what was on your mind at any given moment without fear of judgment or rejection or misunderstanding? where you were truly accepted without having to try so hard to project a certain image or to suck in your belly, without having to perform, without having to worry what people think. See, this was the reality of Genesis 1 and 2. You could say that Adam and Eve were truly at home in the world, but then something happened. And you know the story. There was one tree in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God issued a warning. You must not eat of it. From the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And long story short, spoiler alert, they ate of it and everything changed. With this act, with this sin came death, physical death eventually. But instantaneously, what happened was, if you're really reading carefully, the death of innocence, the death of belonging, 
and really the death of home. In fact, if you turn the page again, Genesis 3, 7, then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They covered themselves up, no longer able to be freely, truly themselves. The world didn't fit them or suit them anymore. They were naked and ashamed. They lost something. And to make it crystal clear, verse 24, what does it say? In verse 24, he drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Theologians refer to this as the fall of man. Sin entered the world through one transgression and through sin came death, shame, and exile. They had to leave their home, but make no mistake, it wasn't just the physical leaving that mattered, home. The second that they knew that they were naked and they were ashamed, home was already lost. And we've been longing for home ever since. So before we go to the next point, let me ask you this. Have you ever felt alone, even though you're surrounded by all these people that presumably are your friends or family? Or have you ever felt like you didn't really belong anywhere? No matter where you went, the job that you were at, the church that you belong to, nothing ever felt right. Nothing ever suited you in the way that you were looking for. See, this explains it. There is a yearning and a longing in us for some place that does fit us and suit us, where we don't have to be ashamed to be our true selves. And so we search. We search all over the place. We look for that new job or that new position, a new community, a new friend group, a new relationship, a new church. I'm sure you've seen it in others. Maybe you've seen it in yourself. Always hoping that that next thing is going to be the thing. That next person is really going to be that friend. That next marriage, this is the one that's going to work. There's this hope that whatever is in the future will be what we're looking for. And the implication is always what we have now. It just doesn't feel like home. And some of us, we do the same thing the other way, right? We're always looking to, to an idealized past. It's like, oh man, in high school, that was it. Where all my friends were there, college, in my 30s, in my 50s, back when I was 90, it was so great. That was when everything was very good. But in our minds, we forget all the bad stuff. Not to mention the fact that we can't go back. It's a fantasy. So whether we're looking to the future or looking to the past, the truth is what we're longing for is the same. We're longing for home. You could say we're homesick. And we're homesick for a place that doesn't exist, at least anywhere on earth, not anymore. We might have fleeting moments of feeling at home, but they're fleeting. And the reason why is what theologians call the fall of man. We had to leave our home, the very good world that we were made for. And no new job, no new relationship, no person, no house, no place will ever satisfy that longing. It's as C.S. Lewis said, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. He was talking about heaven But you got to understand how true this is. We were made for a different world, and that world is this world before the fall. It's just that world is gone. Paradise has been lost. So kind of a bummer, right? This is how we're going to do Christmas. I know, I know. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you all. It's like I'm giving you coal for a sermon. 
Um, but understand, right, even with coal, you can start a fire, right? It's all about your perspective. Just kidding. That was for free. That was for free. But I tell you this because it's the truth. And I think if we don't come to grips with this, if we don't understand this, if we don't see ourselves in a true light, a more accurate light, then we're not going to be able to receive what Christmas really is. See, John points us to this in the beginning, but he's not done. This leads to the second point, the descent, the descent, which is about the story of the son who left his home, John 1.14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, this second point is the most Christmassy of all the points you could say. I mean, we sang the hymn, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Theologians call this the incarnation of Jesus Christ. The word, the son of God existed from eternity past. He was there before anything was, but at a set point in history, he was born into this fallen world as a human being. That's what we talk about. Fully man, fully God. One of the great mysterious doctrines of Christianity. God himself was laid in a manger as a baby boy and they called his name Jesus. This doctrine, among others, totally separates Christianity from every other religion that exists. Sure, other religions have gods, you know, interacting with humans and stuff. But no religion intertwines the transcendent and the imminent like this. And what do I mean by that? No religion speaks of a God who is, on the one hand, so different, so separate, so almighty, so worthy to be feared, on the one hand, and yet, on the other, speaks of him as someone who humbled himself who was born as a mere man, as a baby in a manger, even took the form of a servant. I mean, Islam, for example, they, they speak of a transcendent God. They say Allah is so great, so transcendently great, that it's ridiculous for people to even think of him becoming a man. He's not a man. Why would he ever do that? He's God, right? Bow down and worship. On the flip side, the ancient Greek pantheon was full of gods who were no better or oftentimes worse than mere mortals, just carousing and drinking, getting people pregnant. So you have these two opposite ends of the spectrum. You have transcendence, you have people who are imminent, maybe too imminent. But then you read in this one verse that in the birth of Jesus, the transcendent becomes imminent. Together, what is far off draws close. The word became flesh. Now, what does this mean? Well, there's a story, a famous story of a son who left his home. We read it. In fact, earlier, James read the whole thing. He's called the prodigal. We call him that. And the word prodigal, it simply means extravagant. Okay, It doesn't mean evil or anything like that. It means extravagant or lavish or even reckless in a negative sense. See, the son was the younger son of two. He had an older brother. And the son, he didn't want to wait for his inheritance. He wanted to live his life on his own terms. So what he did was he went to his father and he asked immediately for the inheritance, which if you think about it, is kind of messed up, right? Because when do you get the inheritance? Usually as a son, you get it when your parents pass away, right? You wait, it, it, you wait for them to pass away. I mean, you, hopefully you miss them more than you want their stuff. But for the son, it's the other way around. He says, I don't care if you live or die, just give it to me now. I don't want to wait for you to be dead And the father gives him his share. The bridge is burned and he leaves his home and goes off to a far country where he does whatever he wants. As much as his money can buy, his spending is extravagant. It's lavish. It's reckless. Hence, we call him the prodigal son. 
And this younger brother ends up ruining his life in an attempt to fully enjoy it. And he ends up literally in a pigsty, broken alone. He gets a job working with pigs and he's so hungry, he finds himself longing to eat the food he's giving them. It's rock bottom. And Jesus, okay, we're not preaching this parable. I'm just telling you this story. Jesus told this parable to the Pharisees to illustrate the sinner and God. It's a metaphor. It could be Adam's story. It could be Eve's story. They wanted something, even though it obviously wasn't good. It wasn't what the father wanted. They didn't care about his wishes, but they took it anyway. And at first it seemed good, but it ended up ruining everything. So the story continues. The prodigal son comes to his senses and he remembers his home and he longs for it. And he remembers that his father is a kind and generous man. And he decides that he will go back and beg for forgiveness and ask to be a hired servant. And while he is still, still on his way back, his father sees him and he runs to him and he embraces him and he forgives him even before he can finish his apology. And again, what we see here is the sinner and God. When the sinner repents and turns back to God, God runs to him. And you could say that God himself is prodigal, not reckless, okay, mind you, but lavish and extravagant in his mercy and forgiveness and his grace. But again, the story doesn't end there. The younger brother has an older brother. There are two. And his older brother is furious that this younger son who disrespected their father, who wasted all of their property and their money, who was a shame, who brought shame to their family is back. And not only is he back, but he was forgiven so easily by the father. Why should he deserve it? Why should he be celebrated? And here's what I'm getting at. See, a father, two sons, they live in a house, they're a family. Ostensibly, they had a home together. The younger son, he breaks that home up, right? Because he leaves. He says, I don't want this relationship with you, dad, anymore. But then he comes back and then you're like, okay, the home is restored. The father embraces him. He puts his coat on him. But now there's another problem. The older brother doesn't want him back. The drama continues. The home is still broken. And even if you forget the family dynamics here for a moment, think about the actual issue. The younger brother did, in fact, burn the bridge. He wasted their family's money. He was selfish and he elevated his own wants above the father and the family. Is there a point to be made? If you stand in the brother's place, is there a point to be made that this, that this younger son, this younger son is undeserving and that it would be better off for everyone if he just stayed away? I mean, how could anyone live with this guy? If home means being able to be your true self, I mean, his true self isn't all that great. See, the reality is, that sin leads to shame and separation. It's not just that the world is fallen. It's that we are. We are fallen too. And if we're honest with ourselves, part of our longing for home is always mixed with this fear. Fear that people will see us for who we really are. See that the sin that we bring to the table is just beneath the surface. This fear that we will be rejected. And when you read the Bible, a lot of people hate this about the Bible. The Bible says that we are all sinners and people feel judged by God. I hate that God would judge me. I hate that God would say anything about my life is wrong and they run. There is that fear. 
there is that feeling that there's something wrong with us, but I don't want to have to deal with it. And it reminds me of a story about this man and this woman who went out on a date. And I've told this story before, but the date goes pretty well. And the man, he decides that he's going to go for a second date. Okay, he's going to ask her. So he's walking her home, and then he says, hey, you know, I had a great time. How about, you know, next week? And she says, hold on, I'm just going to cut you off right there. Stop. Okay, I'm not going to go on a second date with you. I had a great time. Thank you. But I know how this ends. So just take my answer as no. Right? And he's kind of taking it back. He's like, oh, okay, why exactly? And she's so honest. She says, okay, you got to understand. Right? I've been through this many times before. Right? I go out on these dates or I meet new people and it goes great in the beginning. But then eventually they find out who I really am. They get to know me more. And once they get to know me, they find things that they don't like and they reject me. So I'm just being honest with you. I'm sick of it. Okay, I don't want it anymore. Let's just have good memories about our one date and then let's just move on. So no thanks. See you later. So honest. It's almost shocking. But then the man says, wait, okay, but I do know you. But I do know you. I've known you so long. I know that you have flaws. I know that you're clumsy, for example, that you're self-conscious about it. I know that you feel, you feel awkward all the time. But listen, I still want to go on that second date. And the reason why it always stuck with me is it's the look on her face. She just looks at him like he's a miracle. And she asks, are you real? Are you real? Look, it's painful to be rejected. I wouldn't know personally, but it's painful. I'm just kidding. It's painful to be rejected. It's exhausting to put up a front. It's impossible. It's truly impossible to be perfect. So what does John 1.14 tell us? It says the word became flesh. And don't skip over it. What does this mean with all of the context, with all of the meaning behind it? It means that the son of the father left his home in heaven. It was not in defiance of his father's will, but in keeping it. And the reason he did so was to seek and to save people who had run away, who had burned that bridge, who were lost. He's the kind of older brother the prodigal didn't have, but the one we do. The one who saw us mess up in every single way we've ever messed up and at great cost to himself still came to save us from ourselves and the consequences of our own sins. See, at Advent, we celebrate the arrival of the Son of God into the pigsty of our world. And we worship for we remember And we acknowledge his love, which is so transcendently great that he meets us exactly where we are. And he knows who we are. His grace so amazing that he doesn't ignore our sin, but instead, what do we read? That he went to the cross and he paid the penalty for all of it. The incarnation is a miracle. But make no mistake, it was absolutely real. And that's the message of Christmas. Now you can believe it or not believe it, but that is what the word of God says. That is the truth. And that's the good news of this holiday. He knows everything about us. He knows our frame. He knows our weakness. He knows what we deserve. He knows the worst things we've ever done, things that we would never want anybody else to know. He knows it already. And yet Christmas preaches to us a message that he came anyway. In fact, that's why he came as one of us to take our place. 
He descended into our world to seek and save the lost like you and me. And I'm telling you right now, Jesus is seeking some of you. He's seeking you right now. And there is nothing like the love of God in Christ Jesus. He beckons us home. He brings us home. And more so, he is home. We'll end this quickly. Third point, the dwelling. The dwelling, which is about all that is available and all that is to come. John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. To dwell, it means to live. Jesus Christ didn't just come to visit, but to live among us, to make his home with us, as it were. But let's dig deeper. The word for dwelt here in Greek, bless you, actually means literally to tabernacle. Not just to live, but to tabernacle, an interesting word to use for sure. And it reminds me of American Idol, as it would. I remember watching American Idol season one. Um, I was an early adopter of this show, this great show. Um, not into idolatry. But I remember watching American Idol, and I remember the first truly great performance uh, in season one was by this uh, 22-year-old named Tamira Gray. I don't know if you remember this. But she sang a song that I had never heard before. And the song was called, A House is Not a Home. I think Luther Vandross sang it. And it has seriously stayed with me in a, in a way forever because that idea, right? A house is not a home. A house is not a home. And if you know the song, it's about how you could live in the same house with someone. But if the relationship isn't there, if you fall out of love or if this person leaves, then this house that used to be a home is no longer a home anymore. See, it's not about the place. It's about the person. So think back to the first point. I know it was a little while ago, but we looked at the beginning and we read what Genesis says, that we were made to live in a very good world. God placed Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. But when they fell, they were exiled from this garden, exiled from their home. And we've been exiled from home ever since. But the story of the Bible doesn't end there. God called a man named Abraham to live for him, and he made a covenant with him. And God turned Abraham into a great, fam- a great family, a great nation, the nation of Israel. But then they were sent into slavery in Egypt. But then God got them out of that. It's called the Exodus. And they were in the wilderness, and they were a nation. They were God's people. And what God gave them was the Ten Commandments. But then he said, I want you to build a tabernacle. And a tabernacle, it was just a portable temple. It was like a tent, okay, where God could dwell. And the reason why they built it was so, so that God could be in their presence, Leviticus 26, 11, so that God can make his dwelling with them, so that God can make his home with them wherever they went. And scholars, interestingly enough, if you ever read the Bible in a year, you can look for this again. They pointed out that, the similar, that there are all these similarities in how Eden is described and how the tabernacle is. God wanted them to build, in a sense, a portable Eden. So put two and two together. Understand, yes, Eden was humanity's original home, but the reason Eden was home, the reason Eden was home wasn't because it was a garden. It wasn't because of the fruit trees. It wasn't because of the locale. It's because God was there. Genesis 3, 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees 
of the garden. God is everywhere, but his manifest presence was in the garden, but sin cut us off for him. So what did God do? He had Israel build a tabernacle and he descended again to be in their presence again. And yet what happened? Sin cut them off again. In fact, the tabernacle, even at its best, had this huge curtain that cut off everybody from the presence of God. Only the high priest could go in and only one time a year. Sin separates. Our home is God, but we couldn't be close to him. But then you read John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then it goes on to say, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John says, we have seen. In Jesus, God came to live with us again, without a curtain to separate us. And as we mentioned, he came to deal with the sin problem once and for all, to live the perfect life we can never live. And then to die the death, we deserve to bear the full weight of sin and punishment, the punishment it deserves upon himself. Jesus was born not just to teach us the way or show us the way, but in fact to be the way. Look, let me put it like this. There's another song. It's not a Christmas song. It's not an American Idol song, but it goes in the chorus. Home is wherever I'm with you. There's a viral video of a little girl singing that with her dad. Home is wherever I'm with you. And that's it. And if you want a more legit quote, St. Augustine said, he prayed to God, God, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless. Hear it. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. And you could tweak it for today, for Christmas. God, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are homeless until they find their home in you. It's not about a garden. It's about the presence of God. And that's why, to bring it again full circle, that's why Christmas so oftentimes is so disappointing, even though all the trappings are there. I remember one pastor was saying that when he talks to people, they always share how disappointing Christmas is with him. Year after year after year, because they have all the stuff, right? They get everything ready. They, they invite their family over for dinner. They decorate the house. They put up the lights. They cook the best food. And then Christmas Day comes and then everyone gets in a big fight. Or Christmas Day comes and some people no-show for no good reason. Or Christmas Day comes and the food uh, gives you food poisoning or whatever. And even when things are good, even when you enjoy your time together and you laugh and you play some games and you watch Lord of the Rings or whatever you do. Even when things go well, when everyone goes home, people are left with this empty feeling. And I'm sure you can kind of understand what that is. I mean, the decorations are still there. The lights are up. You had Christmas dinner. And yet, for some reason, you feel more empty and more alone than you did before. And it's hard to shake. It's kind of a tangible sadness. Have you experienced that at all? And it's because there's no real place or actual family that can ever satisfy these yearnings. It's only God who can do that. It's only God who can see and know everything about us, the worst parts of us, and yet still say that he wants us anyway. It's only God who's never going to leave or forsake. It's only God who would become homeless in a sense to give us a home in him. That's grace. And that's Christmas. And today you can find what you've been searching for. Look, I know not everyone in this room will consider themselves a Christian. I know some of us have felt like we tried God and we found him wanting. There are other things that we want to pursue. Today you can find what you've been searching for, what you will spend your whole 
life longing for if you look to him. In the book of Jeremiah, it says, God says to his people, he says, if you seek me, you will find me if you seek me with all your heart. And that verse gets taken out of context all the time, but you got to understand the principle. God wants us to find him. He draws us to himself. And so many of us, we've been around God, sure. We went to church, yeah, but we've never actually taken God up on his offer. We've never given it a true, real try. We haven't put our whole heart into it. God says, seek me and you will find me. And I know some of us are Christians and we have been trying to put our whole hearts into it. And you know all this, you get it, you've heard it before. And yet you still feel that emptiness and that longing and that yearning. And you feel like, Jesus, why doesn't it feel better than it does? Well, let's bring it full circle. Matthew, Jesus came to make us part of a new family. And that's the blessing of church and the blessing of a relationship with God. We have countless brothers and sisters in Christ, starting with Jesus, our true and better older brother. And Mark, Jesus came to call us to a new life and we can have a different life. Things don't have to be the same. If you repent and believe, you will be, will be changed. And our lives, our daily repentance, going back to him. And then Luke, Jesus was born Lord, Lord over all, even in a world dominated by the Caesars of history. God knows our circumstances. He doesn't ignore them. What he's going to do as Lord of all is he's going to make all things new. Theologians call this the already and not yet. See, you already have Jesus. You already have the beginning of it. But what is to be is still not yet. And I'll close, or before we close, I'll leave you with this. John wrote in Revelation 21 about the end, about the second advent. He said, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. See, there's a sense in which home is already, but home is also not yet. So for you Christians who are feeling that, that not yetness, just hold on a little longer. We'll close here. Andre was six. His younger brother, Luke, was four. And it was their first Christmas holiday with their new family. They had spent their whole lives in an orphanage in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And in the orphanage, celebrating Christmas wasn't really a thing. In fact, in this orphanage, they didn't really celebrate anything. But now they saw people tying trees to the top of their cars and taking them home. Strange and wonderful decorations were popping up in storefronts and in people's yards. Lights were everywhere. And Jennifer, their, their mother, their new mother, tried to explain everything to them that they were saying. And some of it just sounded so ridiculous. She was saying, like, how do you explain this? Like, how do you fit all these things together? She's like, oh, yeah, there's this guy, that guy with the white beard, right? That guy that you see all over the place, the red suit. He's called Santa Claus or also Chris Kringle or St. Nick. All these names. They say he lives in the North Pole and that he visits every single family in one night of the year at Christmas. And, okay, how does he get there? Okay, well, he flies uh, on this sleigh. That's the thing that he's riding with some reindeer. Yeah, those are the animals that are pulling him. And she's just like, when you explain it, it just sounds crazy. It sounds so unbelievable. I'm not saying Santa's not real or not. You can tell your own kids that. 
I'm definitely not saying he is real, though. But you know what's interesting? What's interesting was she tried to explain all these things, these fantastical things, to Andre and to Luke. But to them, everything wasn't just new. Everything was kind of unbelievable. Everything in their lives. It was just, okay, listen, understand this. It was just as foreign of a concept, just as impossible sounding to them, that a family might want to put their pictures up on a tree as believing that Santa Claus might actually visit every single household in the world. In the recordings they took of this first Christmas, all you can hear is, are you kidding me? Are you kidding? From these kids, because everything was blowing them away, filling them with awe. All that Christmas stuff, sure, but really all the home stuff. And the way that the home was for them, they're like, sure, I guess there is just a magical guy who flies from the North Pole because crazy miracles happen. And that's it. See, there's a longing in the human soul for something that can only be described as home. And in the advent of Jesus Christ, what we have is a story that has many facets, family and forgiveness and fear even. But in a very real sense, it's a story of home. And if you've been unhappy lately, with how things are going in your life, if you felt guilty lately for the things you messed up by your actions, if you found yourself far from God and not really even knowing what all this is about, what Jesus offers, what the Christmas story, the true story of Christmas offers is home right now. So stop your searching in all these other places. You won't find what you're looking for. It won't be in a house or a family or a job. Search for home in him. And as he promised his people, you will find him when you seek him with all your heart. So may today be the day. And may we look to him, this child born in a manger, the incarnate son of God, and see him as the miracle that he is. A miracle, and yet he's real. Merry Christmas. Will you bow your heads with me? God, I pray that you would do what only you can do. God, I'm thankful you have given us a home in Christ. I pray, God, that we would, that we would look to him. And I pray that you would change our hearts. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.